Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Nick Lippis, and welcome to the Built for Trust podcast, where you get to hear from all the folks who are building and shaping AI enterprise infrastructure. Now, let's get right into it with our guests. Hey, Chris. How you doing? How you doing, Nick? I'm doing great, thanks. Hey, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, we're looking forward to this chat, you know. So everything okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just rolling along. Yeah. 2024, shot out of a cannon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're almost 112th into it. <laughs> you know, I, know. So, I know, it goes yeah. by fast. Yeah, it does. So, hey, I wanted to start this chat um, by kind of like um, going through a little bit of like your own career journey. Sure. You know, I think a lot of folks who kind of plug in and also come to own, they're always looking to see, oh my God, you know, what were the decisions that, you know, he or she made um, that brought them, you know, to this level in their career? So, um, sure. I mean, yeah, I can I definitely, it's, yeah, I would say it's more of a series of just uh, lucky decisions and not really, I never really had a career map. I, uh, I graduated college in 1993 with a degree in economics from the University of Connecticut. Um, my mom taught computer science, so um, so I had some growing up. There was a lot of that in my house. Uh, 1993 was not a great job market, so I went back to school for computer science part time. And uh, if I'm being frank, kind of talked my way into my first role at a company mm -hmm. called National Reinsurance that was mm -hmm. uh, hostily taken over by Jen Re while I was there my first week, and uh, <laughs> wound up grabbing a consulting job at a company called um, CUC International. And it was a help desk job. It was uh, running around fixing printers and um, fixing computers and stuff that I always did as a kid. Didn't realize you can yeah. make a living out of it. Did that mm. for a few months and um, took a job at an EDI company called Mercator. At the time it was called TSI, where I was yeah. on their uh, support staff. So customers would call in and I would help them troubleshoot issues with our software and our hardware. Did that for a couple of years and um, then joined a company called Greenwich Technology Partners, which was a pretty well-known mm. um, uh, infrastructure consulting firm and worked on a couple good projects, moving data centers for Starwood and doing some stuff for Chase around, um, around Citrix. And uh, this was the late 90s and was learning a lot of different technologies, getting a lot of certifications, and then decided I wanted to try my... my, my uh, Try out management and wound up getting a job at GE managing technology, and so uh -huh. that's really what started where my career is now. So I, I worked at GE in different roles in different divisions for about fifteen years, doing many different jobs. So was, you know, storage, compute, network, network security, and then more general leadership. Uh, mm -hmm. Really learned the GE leadership uh, uh, mantra. Went through all the GE leadership classes. Left GE in 2015, did a brief uh, stint at JP Morgan Chase running their network, and then found a role here at Cigna, uh, where I've been for the last, its I think this is my ninth year. Mm. And uh, yeah. the role here has been really interesting. It's, it's changed throughout the years, but generally speaking, you know, I have everything from data center through cloud, um, which is really interesting because I, I get to see the transformation that we talk about a lot at Onug from sort of traditional infrastructure to infrastructure as code to now, you know, AI infrastructure as we kind of um, mature our cloud journey and mature how we use technology 
to uh, basically uh, benefit the health and well-being of our customers, patients, and partners. And so it's really been an, an awesome journey. I've Along the way, I've met a lot of great leaders, met a lot of great technicians. And um, yeah, I mean, that's where I am today, and I, I enjoy it uh, immensely. So Yeah, I tell you, there's so many great uh, pedigree that came out of GE. Um, like so many really great people, even like, you know, on our board, Regis Rogers and uh, Shafiq Sheikh, you know, and yeah. uh, Chris um, Drumgool, okay. you know. Um, so, so many really great folks um, came out of uh, GE and and everyone is so professional. It must have been all those kind of management classes that everybody had to take over at GE, but they they understand business and they understand kind of their roles and uh, and they have really great interpersonal skills. You know, they're very yeah. respectful and you really like being with them. It's uh, it's actually, it's a really great, great company that produced a, real, a lot of really great executives. And it's doing well again. It's nice to see. I mean, we're all XGE, but we still pull for the company. We have a, a, a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears went into helping build that company. And I, I think GE just did that. Intrinsically, the culture of GE just taught you that, you know, to be fair, to be tough, to, you know, to not make decisions based on your sort of personal insecurities, but to do what was best for the firm. The best piece of advice I ever got at GE that I still do to this day is that GE, your job was to work yourself out of a job. And by working yourself mm. out of a job, you were always going to have a job at GE. And so I try to instill that in my engineering teams to, to think like that when they're solving problems. If, if you're trying to solve problems and thinking about it as an impact to your job, you're not going to make the best decision for the firm. But if you're always trying to do something that's innovative that makes it so that you can take your intelligence and work on a bigger problem, the firm will always benefit. So I, I took that away from GE and I try to live that every day. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's awesome. That's a great, you know, those are great nuggets that we all pick up, you know, along the way that kind of really influence how we kind of view the world and, uh, and kind of guides us. Um, you know, it's interesting, actually, Chris, one, I think the way that we kind of got connected kind of really kind of a you know, circuitous, you know, kind of way um, was, a, was a gentleman named Steve, um, I think, um, Bowles. So um, Steve ran, um, uh, he had all the clean energy business um, at GE and I got to know Steve, you know, over the years. And then Steve, um, you know, said, okay, well, what are you doing with this thing called ONUG? And so I told him, he goes, why don't we get GE involved? And so, um, so he connected me with Chris Drumgool. And uh, and that's how uh, all of a sudden the relationship with uh, GE really started and, and fostered, you know, and, uh, and it's been actually a really great one, you know, as well. So uh, and Bob Basaki, you know, as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's uh, a cool GE. thing. You have all these GE guys that are, you know, Bob's at Microland and Regis is doing a startup now and Shafiq's uh, he's moved on. And so that we always call it like the GE network kind of if you yeah. get in with GE and you wait three years, people are going to move around. And I just like it because. First of all, when I go to the ONUG uh, conferences, it's like a little bit of a reunion. I bumped into a guy that worked for me who was at Synchrony now. And so mm. it's always like that 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 little opportunity for XGE folks to get together. But then, you know, the power of ONUG has always been the diversity in the community. And as a GE, people go out and they venture into different companies and they they then bring those companies and introduce, introduce them to ONUG. It just creates a better... Um, a better set of uh, ideas and, and diverse opinions that ultimately benefits all the members and benefits the industry. So I, I definitely yeah. enjoyed my time there. 
Yeah, awesome. Well, you know, your your contributions have been huge, you know, on the leadership team, you know, for for a long period of time. So, you know, not only do I thank you, but the whole community, uh, you know, thanks you. And the networking part of Onug is pretty amazing, I have to say, you know, for the reasons that, that you just uh, you just mentioned. So um, anyway, so that's, you know, it's so funny because like even like I started my career at Digital Equipment Corporation and um, DEC, like GE, has a great pedigree. You know, it's like so many people left there to go do different things. And it is wonderful to kind of uh, meet them and, you know, and hook up and, and talk to them. I don't have something like an ONU that, you know, that pedigree kind of comes to, you know. Um, so I'm happy that's happening, you know, when we when we meet twice a year. Yeah. So, um, all right. So I want to actually, uh, so something you and I have talked about, um, but, you know, uh, I'd like to kind of bring into this. And um, we both have kind of a love for music and playing music. You know as well i'm sure you're a lot better at it than i am you know um but oh, know so i'm sure <laughs> it's like i have always relegated to the basement <laughs> to <play. laughs> go downstairs <laughs> is what i always hear you know but uh so how did your kind of how did your music journey start like when did it start and kind of and what do you do today oh i started young i mean my my father um my father was a cool cat. Like he was a big Miles Davis fan and uh, he was a little bit of a, uh, you know, took his twenties to really enjoy life. And, you know, there's stories of him taking a semester off from college to follow Miles Davis around the Eastern seaboard and definitely a, a big music uh, uh, aficionado, never learned to play an instrument and a really nice voice for singing, very artistic mm -hmm. too, my father. And so when we were kids, you know, I didn't grow up, my, my parents were teachers. So I grew up in a, relatively lower middle class house. But one thing my parents were very um, adamant about was that me and my siblings all play an instrument. So when I was in fifth grade, uh, I chose trumpet. And my father was a teacher at Nog Tech High School. And the, the, um, the, the trumpet, the band leader there was a guy named Robert Filippelli. And he'd send me up for private lessons with him. And I really took to trumpet. Um, Sort of got got really into it, and I, I think I was a seventh or eighth grade, and I, I had an uncle come visit from California, and he gave me an old Yamaha nylon string guitar. Mm. He had it, and, he, and I remember the, the 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 pick he gave me was actually the the fastener for a loaf of bread, the little plastic tab. So it wasn't yeah. even a real pick, and I started kind of messing around that. I knew how to read music a little bit, and this is back before the internet, so I'd go buy a magazine or I got a book from the library, and really took to guitar playing and. Throughout high school, I, I pretty much played trumpet in the band, but then guitar in a lot of bands, like, you know, it was uh. a bunch of different bands that, you know, with, with my friends and started taking lessons um, from from friends of mine, did that all the way through college, played in a couple bands in college, was up at UConn and played out at bars with a friend of mine. And usually we'd have to wind up paying money at the end of the night because we drink more than we made. <laughs> Um, and then never really, you know, I, when I, when I graduated college, I never really stopped playing. I, I've always, like, there's a guitar right behind me. There's always a guitar near me and yeah. I, I'm notorious on conference calls. People see me holding the ukulele when I'm on mute or a guitar. I'm always fiddling away. And, um, yeah. you know, I, it's just something that's part of my life. I have three sons. They all play guitar. They all play a band instrument. And, uh, we have a band here at Cigna that we, uh, play the picnics and some of the events and, um, you know, we talked about this. There's a the in IT. There's a huge percentage of musicians. Yeah. So I love that. I walk out of here and I'm like, hey, do we have a drummer? And ten hands go up because you can never find a drummer, right? Bass players, we yeah. got them all. So uh, we've talked about doing a jam band to Onug. So it's something that's important to me. It's a way I distress. 
It helps mm. me kind of let the day go. And uh, I still get excited playing a Van Halen tune on guitar. It's I've, I've not gotten old. So yeah. Um, I just really enjoy it. So yeah. That's How awesome is that? Yeah, no, I love yeah. that. You know, it's like, I'm so envious of like, um, you know, folks like you that started really early. Like I started, I played saxophone in, uh, in middle school. And I think the good experience about that was that it did teach me how to read music, you know? Um, but then, uh, then I stopped and it wasn't until like, you know, my fifties, I picked up a guitar, you know, and started playing. And so I try to play every night, um, you know, but it's, um, and I got into an ensemble, you know, but I don't have anywhere near that kind of depth of experience. If you have a playing with others and, uh, for a long, a long period of time. So, um, when I do, it's a lot of fun. I have such a great time, you know, with it. Um, it takes, it utilizes a different part of your brain, you know, yeah. which is, which I really love, you know, uh, about music, you know, just understanding music theory and, um, and then trying to figure out something that you're hearing in your head and how do you express that, you know, is, um, is, is actually a great high, you know, as well. It's, um, oh, yeah. it's, I just wish I hadn't started it and done it like, you know, when I was 16, 17, you know, years old, but Hey, you can't look back at least i'm having fun now with it when you're when you're playing an instrument you're kind of at the crossroads of logic and math and creativity and it's that's what's cool about it and yeah. you know there's all kinds of science around you know people that learn how to read music does it impact their creativity versus someone like a Jimi hendrix who might be considered one of the most innovative guitar players ever that didn't read music and mm. just you know you know he wasn't he wasn't bound by music theory and he did some stuff that no one ever heard before but i love exploring it um you know, we're always learners. And that well, the cool thing is what you said is you, it's never too late. You know, mm. I'm, I'm about to embark on taking piano lessons. Um, you know, my son who just started at UConn was taking piano lessons. He gave up his slot and I'm like, well, I'll, I'll jump in and take your slot for piano lessons. And I was like, you know, it's never too late to learn a new instrument. And um, so we're going to see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's actually, I would even say it's, it's important, you know, uh, I think for mental health, you know, it's like to learn, kind of an art form, you know, um, as you're, especially as you're getting older, you know, it's like, it's not getting ready for retirement, but, um, but it's also, you know, you, you tend to have a little bit more time when you're a little bit older, um, uh, because you can, you're much more efficient at work because you've been doing it for so long. Um, so, you know, so you have the extra time, you know, utilize it to kind of, um, you know, utilize a part of your brain that maybe you haven't used, uh, used before. I like how you said that efficient at work for me. It's when I have a really boring meeting, I can think about songs in my head and decide, Hey, can I learn that song? Is that, was that, is that a, <laughs> you know, where is that, where is that chord structure on circle of fifths? And then hopefully they'll be asking me a question about whatever they're talking about in the meeting. But I get I know. It. <laughs> You know, it's so funny. I have a good friend who is a really accomplished uh, guitar player. Um, and, uh, he, he never studied music theory and, you know, just, he's one of those, you know, persons that kind of just like played, um, so I'm like, all right, so his name is Vic. So I'm like, Vic, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm learning kind of the, the, the major pentatonic scale, you know, he goes the what? I said, you know, major pentatonic scale, <laughs> you know, he goes, what's that? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> you know? He knows it inside and out. <laughs> yeah. He knows it inside and out. Yeah. He'll play it, you know, it's like eyes closed, you know, upside down, you know, it's like whatever, but like, yeah, he just, you know, never kind of learned, um, you know, uh, all the different keys, you know, all the different modalities, like within the keys, you know, and all that stuff, you know, so, but he's, he is a fantastic guitar player, you know, really great. So I uh, also, I love what you, you know, said as well, and I'm going to use that for kind of transition. You know, I kind of view, um, there is a similarity around math that I find with, with music and, and the, 
and I, I think people have divergent views on that. But where I find is that I kind of remember like taking kind of like both algebra and then into calculus classes. And in calculus, you really don't understand algebra until you take calculus because you're forced to do so much algebra within calculus. And then um, when I'm playing guitar, I might learn a certain chord sequence, you know, within a certain key. Um, and I'm, when I'm first learning it, it's like, okay, that's a little bit, you know, weird, you know, and I start getting a little bit better. And then, okay, I get to a place where I'm comfortable with it. And then I may come back to it, you know, like a while, like, you know, six months ago, and I've been playing other things and those other things built upon it. And now it's a lot easier to play. And so it's like those signatures and um, those, um, I guess signatures is really the best, best term, you know, uh, just like in math, there's so many different signatures and you're kind of see something, you just, oh, that's that operation. And let me go off and do this. So I think, I think it's the, the inquisitive nature of the musician too. So, you know, when I started out, I would, you know, play a three chord song and you just were happy because it sounded like the song that you were trying to learn, right? If it was a who song or whatever, you're like, wow, mm -hmm. this sounds like Bob O'Reilly. This is so cool. And then, you know, if, what makes you good at IT and, and math, what makes you good at music is then you're like, well, why, what's, what, what are those chords? What are the triads? What are the notes in those chords? And then you start, so one day you sit down, you get a piece of paper and you write them out and they go, what are all the scales that encompass those notes? And then you're like, mm. oh, well, I could play this scale over it and it sounds cool. And over this chord, I can make this little change. And next thing you know, you're like, I'm playing a solo that sounds really cool over Bob O'Reilly and Pete Townsend wasn't a big soloist. That wasn't his thing. And so, and then you're oh. like, well, if I can do that over Bob O'Reilly, can I do it over a harder song? And so I feel like that inquisitive nature, and I've always said, I, and this is not a, you know, a hundred percent, but IT people tend to be introverted. It's not a very extroverted science, right? Technology. And mm -hmm. so these are people, if you're an introvert, you tend to spend more time focusing on learning something because you're not necessarily out and about. I mean, I, you know, I've spent High school plenty of friday nights at home learning songs at guitar and not out of dances and stuff like that and so that's just the way the brain works and and you you want to get more of a deep knowledge kind of like you know having to take calculus to understand um to understand algebra and so i like that that's why i like working in it because it's a bunch of people that aren't just happy with if i go hey just do it this way they're gonna go no 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 why, why am i doing it that way and they're gonna go home and they're gonna noodle on it and they're gonna think about it and that's why we don't really call it work, right? A lot of us that grew yeah. up in networking, we didn't feel like it was work when we were on calls at 10 o'clock at night trying to figure out, you know, why we had latency between our site and, a, and, a, and the internet. It was fun for us because we wanted to understand it and then we wanted to figure out how to make it better. And so yeah. if you love doing it, it's not a job. And so I think all those sort of, you know, personality traits and skill sets, when they kind of work together well, it, 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 there's work-life balance is inherent because you're doing what you love to do. And um, I love being around people like that. I love being challenged. Yeah. I love when people say, Chris, why are you thinking that way? And they, you know, they ask me the five whys we used to call it GE and, 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 mm. and you know, you get your opinion changed or they learn something or you learn something. And I feel yeah. that way about music when I'm sitting next to another musician, watching them play and just a simple song, they'll fret a chord different. I'm like, why are you doing that? Well, it's easier to move my pinky from here to here. And I was like, never thought of it. Fantastic, yeah. you know. So, I love that stuff. But yeah, I'm with you, you know, yeah. on that. And uh, let's kind of take that and kind of stretch this that that idea a little bit. So, um, before, like you were talking about, you had data center, also cloud, and kind of in the midst of transformation. So, um, on the on our industry side, so 
we uh, at our last board meeting, we were talking about how things got so complex um, within many of our operations. And it wasn't just you. It was like a lot of people were kind of chiming in on that. So could you provide maybe a little bit of color, you know, to that? And so what's driven up the complexity since really the pandemic, you know? Um, so yeah. what are some of the drivers for that complexity? I think, so I, I think, listen, I think complexity has been around for a long time. I, I have a, a speech I give to, um, to like when we, when we, we have something called tech DP. So it's college grads that come and they rotate through different technical departments for a few years and they kind of get a lot of exposure to a lot of different capabilities in an IT department the size of Cigna. And then they come off program and they kind of get their career started. And um, I've made a living because of complexity in IT, right? Mm. So if you think about, you go back to the nineties, right? We'll, we'll just talk about internet forward. The internet yeah. created complexity. Applications started to get complex. They came off the mainframe, the cycle to which you had to enhance your capabilities and application got really short because of the internet, this whole internet boom and, you know, this whole, uh, what do they call it? B2B and, 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 you know, uh, internet marketplace. And so uh, when applications were on the mainframe and largely there's still a bunch on there, there was a whole, you know, culture and tradition as to how they were maintained. They sat on a mainframe. There was a set of parameters they had to work within. Once we got to uh, client server and the internet, you know, the, the speed of innovation, the different languages people programmed in, it got very complex very quickly. And then all of a sudden, the, 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 the infrastructure team had to come up with innovative ways to keep these applications up, to keep them resilient, to improve uh, issues when they we're having latency. So you have these things like load balancers, firewalls to protect them. And we know how complicated firewalls can get. Um, yeah. You know, all the different uh, virtualization right to to for the desktop because of the latency because of data gravity issues the mpls network came along and created more issues with high applications remember applications used to sit in the data center that was in your building so you had mm. you know 10 megabit land speed was crazy fast you never need more than that and so all these different things kind of happened and it got complicated then you get to the pandemic totally takes corporate sort of culture and tips it on his ear everybody runs home now you yeah. have to create all these same capabilities. Every house is like a, a business site. You've got all this need to accelerate because the, the the market is getting faster and faster. And you look at healthcare where I am is so dynamic. You've got, you know, um, cloud becoming viable, right? So more and more workloads are moving to cloud. You have things like infrastructure as code. So now you have development pipelines and you have to be able to automate your code deployment through these pipelines. And, you know, we're talking about companies that have a lot of legacy application uh, development and, and, mm. and technologies that now you're trying to expedite through this, this sort of new world order around speed to market, um, you know, mean time to, to um, to innocence in terms of what's breaking the application, how you create uh, better better uh, uh, data and better um, insights from the uh, infrastructure and the applications to make sure that you can uh, iterate on, on their ability to serve the, your customers as best as they possibly can. And we've gotten to this point now where we're looking to capabilities in the artificial intelligence market, to automation, to actually kind of replace what we do, which is we're very hmm. reactive. I mean, I know we've done a lot to make it more proactive, but we're still as an IT uh, industry reactive to issues. Now we've gotten very good at, you know, hmm. reducing the time to find the issue. We've gotten very good at innovating 
uh, solutions to make sure the issue doesn't happen again. But the complexity still drives a lot of that reactive nature. And I say where we yeah. are now, and I think where you're going to go with this, we're on the precipice of, well, how do we allow the data and intelligence to start making some of those decisions for us to actually even iterate on that speed? And in some case, de- yeah. you know, uh, bring down the complexity level. So what we're doing at Cigna is we're, you know, we're obviously application rationalization. We're trying to look at things like firewalls, like port and IP firewalls. Do they really serve a purpose anymore? Do we have, you know, where are they, where do they sit? What's the administrative overhead of all this sort of, I used to call infrastructure middleware. How do we, you know, how do we simplify this? How do we take advantage of capabilities that exist in, you know, the public cloud providers where they can do that, you know, better, faster, cheaper, easier. How do we, you know, really put a lot of emphasis in cloud native development and taking advantage of all the uh, things we've done in the infrastructure community to create resiliency, to create security and develop it directly into the application versus layering it on, on a legacy application, which is how we've done it for many years. And so it's a yeah. really, really fun time, exciting time to be in this industry. I tell people it's like 1993. We have hmm. AI. We know yeah. it's going to do amazing things. We don't know the jobs it's going to create. We don't know the impact it's going to have to to you know to our firms, to our industries. But it's going to be exciting. It's going to open yeah. all kinds of doors. It's just how do we get going and how do we do it in a way that that we can you know that we don't we don't do the proverbial open the front door and let the bad guys in because they have all these capabilities too. Yeah, well, for sure, it's kind of equal opportunity for, uh, with the tools, right? Um, sure. I, I love what you said. You know, it's like really the complexity drove um, and drives the interrupt nature, you know, um, of kind of the profession, you know, uh, right? And and I think that and complexity has always been there. Complexity inflation has always been there, you know, sure. um, as well. Uh, it seems like it was just at a different level because of the sprawl that was created um, during the pandemic. But I, I love like, you know, really you're so the way that you're thinking about simplification there, I'm kind of going to put it into two different buckets. You know, one is that, OK, well, what can we do in the infrastructure to simplify, eliminate things that we really don't may not even need anymore? Um, how do we leverage, you know, other tools like cloud, you know, to uh, to take over some of those things that we were once doing uh, inside? So there's kind of a whole optimization uh, thinking through the existing infrastructure. And then there's the AI piece. And the AI piece is really interesting. I think you, something you said, I think, I think this is what you were getting at there. Um, if it's not, just let me know. And that is um, we spend a lot of time tinkering and tooling with the infrastructure to support applications. And, um, and the question is that can the infrastructure start doing that, take that toil over uh, with, uh, with a range of AI tools so that, the so an application um, for just to kind of conjure up a mental model could there be like an AI orchestrator and that could be maybe a federated group of AI um, algorithms running all throughout the infrastructure but uh, but say there's an AI orchestrator um, that works on behalf of an application and then so that orchestrator then um, the application needs connectivity to a certain place. Um, it, you leverage that infrastructure, but instead of maybe just best effort, um, um, you know, to get from point A to point B, it's now looking at security posture. It's looking at latencies and various different links. It's looking at um, the user experience um, and how does it now deliver on that user experience and drawing upon uh, written policy, you know, for that. So 
is now the infrastructure are we basically moving from an infrastructure environment where we were connecting things together, physically connecting things together, um, into um, an environment where it's not about just providing connectivity for um, all you know, intents and purposes we have that, but maybe it's really all about now utilizing that infrastructure to deliver that service to that application and automated service. So I don't know, is that I, when you were- I- yeah, yeah, no, I definitely think. I mean, when I think about this, right, I, 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 I think about all the tools and all the data that we that all the tools we use to pull all the data we have from both our applications and our infrastructures. And today, the way we're set up is we have different organizations that pull different data or like data, but then use their own set of tools to analyze that data and make decisions on how to get that application or that whatever to perform better. There's a few flaws in that. One is we're large organizations, people are going 100 miles an hour and they don't necessarily stop to talk to each other. So you'll have potentially the power of the diverse teams looking at that data and, 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 and agreeing on an insight doesn't happen as regularly or as, um, as efficiently as it could happen. The second thing is, is that we really don't understand our applications. I'm saying this in the, in the greater sense of technology in that, to your point, the sprawl. There's, these applications are no longer housed to your data center and you know every element or tile that it accesses to do to do something. Um, every time you have an issue, you learn something different about the applications. And I'm not saying people are asleep at the wheel. It's just there's so many different supportive applications that support an application. It's beyond the, the, the ability for one person to, to, to remember everything. And so you have to kind of, you know, you follow the packet. Like, mm-hmm. why is this application going out to this service? You follow the packet and then someone goes, oh, yeah, we're doing that because we've got this one particular thing. We need to do this thing. And, oh, yeah, we forgot. It. No, boom. That, that, that is a lot of how we use data and insights when we're in the heat of an issue, right? Yeah. The third thing is, is that um, um, we, we, uh, we change so fast now. The, 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 the way applications change and the way we add capabilities is a, a speed that if you actually had to slow down and manually go in and tool these applications, you would slow the business down from mm. hitting its objectives because our ability to manually get involved is slowing down the speed at which these capabilities need to be developed and deployed. And so you're always kind of playing catch up. And that's kind of been going on for years, if we're being honest, right? Um, yeah. And so where I like AI is that it's kind of that, think about it, is that that ability to take all this data, develop insights from that data. Now, the data has to be accurate. That's one thing we've always struggled mm-hmm. with, right? Uh, yeah. CMDB accuracy has always been something we've struggled with. I feel like AI is going to you know, help us both you know, make sure the data is accurate. So that sort of that, that audit capability to know it's accurate, but then the insights it's going to glean from it, it's going to be able to dynamically make the change or fix the issue or choose the right path or choose the, you know, the right security uh, firewall that has to go up for that particular insight at that given moment. And it's going to work yeah. at the speed of light. Right. Yeah. And so I, I envision a world where, you know, today we're having latency and our tools might find it, but a bunch of people get on the call and they go, well, do we fail from, I'm just making up names. I don't, I'm not saying any of these are suppliers, but do we fail from Verizon to Lumen? And will that solve the problem? And then we'll fail. And if the problem goes away, boom, we did it. Then we'll do a PIR, find out what really happened with it and try to go back and make sure it never happens again. That's sort of a typical issue you'd see in our in in, in corporate IT. 
Yeah. Tomorrow, the the to your point, the 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 sort of the digital ops will do that for us. We'll 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 get a log or we'll get some sort of a spit out that says it did that today. And the reasons why it did it, I think those reasons will enlighten us. And it can mm-hmm. do it at the speed of light, meaning that you know, today we're not gonna fail over one application to a different path unless there's really a like a, a an impactful uh thing going on that's impacting our customers. And and tomorrow it'll do it and it'll bring it back when it's better. And it, it's it'll just make the customer experience better, meaning that they won't yeah. maybe get a 502 error one out of every hundred times, or they won't feel like, oh, the app seems a little laggy today. It's working, but it's a little laggy. Tomorrow that all goes away because the ability for it to orchestrate, to your point, all these quick improvements, both from a performance perspective, but also from a security perspective, it's going to yeah. do two things. It's going to make everybody's lives easier, right? Yeah. Because that's that's a lot of work today for a lot of smart people that we really want focused on driving better uh, uh, innovations on our business side. And the second thing is it's going to improve our security posture because I kind of feel like we're quickly getting to a point where if you have to get a bunch of people on a call to figure out what's going on, you might be a little late to the game. That's time. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of how I'm viewing it in the capabilities. And I think we've had the, the data has been there for a long time. It's the ability to, you know, to, to take that data and in, in the confidence to let, the, the uh, insights that come from that data dynamically change something in our environment. And then you make sure we log it and that we have all the right auditing and accounting for it. But I, I think we're quickly coming on that. The cloud providers do yeah. it today to a certain extent. Yeah. So it's coming. Yeah, but. It's interesting too. I wonder like, you know, um, so on the human side, um, you know, of this, there's the element of trust, you know, and how long will the, how long will it take to trust? Well, first it's got to be developed, right? And so like, you know, where, yeah. you know, where the industry is quickly kind of moving to kind of enable these tools, um, kind of let's assume that the tools are here, you know, then how long does it take to trust? I remember like, you probably remember this too, Cisco probably, I don't know, when was this? Like, you know, in the 20, 2005, 2010 timeframe, they introduced something, what was it called? Um, was it media access control? I know that's that stands oh, yeah. for Mac, Mac. But um, say again. I'm sorry. That was Mac. Yeah, that's um. Yeah, you're talking. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I'm not gonna remember. That. Yeah. So there would be some anomalistic um, signature behavior, uh, and then they would basically take that those packets and that IP address, and then they would delegate it towards a protected VLAN, uh, so that you can remediate and find out what's going on there. Um, a lot of folks didn't trust it. You know, uh, it wasn't anything wrong with the technology, but they were just like. Um, just didn't, you know, didn't want to trust the, um, the robot to kind of make that decision. So yeah, I'm wondering, because, but, but the, cause the robot was just doing that based on one specific data insight. It was gleaning from that Cisco log. Look at IPS is a perfect example. Nobody mm-hmm. ever wanted to put it in prevent mode, right? They always want to just oh. have it log and set an alert. And someone goes, is this real? Because you're afraid if you said block that signature and it was a false positive, you're going to break an application. So I, get, I know where you're going with this because we've had this capability to have it dynamically turn off. I think the difference now is it's looking at all data and insights, meaning that not mm. only can it, I, I envision this, and listen, I'm a little wacky. I watch a lot of sci-fi movies, but this world where, you know, <laughs> so, uh, th- this, this potential capability will look at a, a much broader set of data and insights, make a yeah. decision. It will be able to make that change potentially even in a 
in a non-prod environment to, to see the impact of that change and then deploy it to prod knowing that it's going to do what it's expected to do. The application is not going to be impacted. There's not going to be any outages. You're not opening up a potential security um, gap in doing it. Like that, that now mm. it's going to take time to trust that, right? I mean, it's, that's, there's a lot of trust in that. And what will make us trust it? Yeah. Seeing it happen and doing things that we would have never thought to do that actually the outcome is better than what we would yeah. have done using our traditional tool sets. Yeah, so outcome. Is, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Outcome will build trust. Point now. Yeah. yeah. I think we're at that point now. I think before those, and those were good capabilities and, you know, at different companies, depending on what industries you're in, what kind of data you're talking about, would trust them differently. But I think we're get, we're on the precipice of the data is better. The logic is better. The intelligence is better. And it's yeah. going to make better decisions. You know, yeah. I was in a, I was yeah. at a conference unrelated, but it's kind of the same message. I was at a conference. Mm -hmm. It was Cisco. It was a Cisco, you know, Cisco Live around the same time you were talking about used to have an executive small conference inside Cisco Live. They bring like yeah. 40 executives from larger companies. And I had the benefit of going there when I was working at GE and Peter Diamandis. So he's out there. He's a big um, influencer. Mm -hmm. He was he was the guest speaker at this one. And he was talking about computers driving surgical vehicles to perform surgery on people. So back then, mm -hmm. two, you know, 15, 20 years ago, this was kind of a, th a future thing. And I remember he said something. Mm -hmm. I don't remember anything about his speech other than he was really charming. He was a medical doctor. He was a PhD. And his pedigree was ridiculous. That's I remember that. Yeah. And then I remember this one <laughs> statement. There'll be a time in the near future will you request the computer to do the surgery, not the surgeon. You will want yeah. the computer to perform surgery on you. Now, I'm, I'm luckily, I have not had to have any surgery yet, but I yeah. assume I will at some point. And that has always resonated in my head. Well, I think it's a very same comparison to at some point in the near future, your technology leaders, your business leaders will say, let the AI, let the, the AI insight decide how we remediate this issue don't let, you know, let, we trust that more than a bunch of smart people on an outage call, trying stuff and seeing which wor what works. I do believe we're going to get to that point. So, yeah, um, uh, I'm with you on that. I think there's so much like, I think we're tired of the toil, you know, um, you know, that it takes to kind of like, you know, constantly tweak and keep that infrastructure up and running. And, uh, and, and it kind of goes back into the simplification, you know, theme that we talked about before about how do you mitigate complexity? This is a great way. Uh, it's a great new tool, um, we hope, uh, to mitigate that complexity. And um, I want to tie one other thing that you said into this as well. And that is GE, you know, one of the, one of the things that the management school, you know, taught you is that you should be always constantly working um, yourself out of a job. So now I was talking to Gene Sun yesterday and Gene um, had this really great quote. And he said, like, you know, to my staff, I don't tell them AI is not going to take your job. What's going to take your job are people with AI skills. So um, it's not going to, it's not the AI is that you have really got to get up to speed, you know, and understand how to utilize, you know, this new technology and, um, and actually bring that power to bear uh, in everything that you do. So that That's was similar um, to cloud, right? Cloud five years ago, everybody's like, cloud's going to replace my job. No, oh yeah, yeah. Like, cloud doesn't replace your job, but you had to learn about cloud. I, I, Bill Gates said something I read in the paper last week. He was talking about AI. Um, 
you know, he's a little bit biased. He's still the largest shareholder at Microsoft, the most valued company in the world. But he, he's yeah. very bullish on AI, like most of these, um, you know, technologists are. And he said, you know, we don't even know the jobs AI will create. And yeah. I, I kind of read, I was like, oh, it's a good little blurb, but what does he mean? But then I was thinking about, I mean, I started my career in 1993. I started yeah. at the beginning of the internet boom. And if you yeah. asked me in 1993 that we would be where we are with the dependence on the internet, if the internet were to go down, I know it's like, like imagine the internet just went dark for an hour. Yeah. The, the, the world's economy would crash. I mean, every mm-hmm. um, everything we do in life is somehow tied to the internet now. And then on top of that, the jobs it's created. Think of all the jobs that we never even heard of or thought about in the early yeah. 90s that exist today, the careers that the internet created. This is this is no different. I, I think to sit there and um, if you're worried about your specific job today and in, 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 in AI and, and you know you want to bury your head in the sand or you want to try to keep it at bay because of that, don't. You should embrace it because all it's going to do is a, you're going to get opportunity to learn something new, which is we're in technology because we like learning. But two is yeah. you're going to a whole bunch of capabilities and new interesting things to do in life are going to come out of this. And so why wouldn't you want to do that? We call it future proofing your career. Right. And so there's yeah. you should be excited about this. Um, I've, I've yet to see a technology. We've been doing this a long time, Nick, that yeah. shrinks the IT org. The IT orgs now are bigger than they've ever, in fact, they're, I mean, the IT org is almost becoming ethereal because most people coming into the workforce now have better foundational IT skills than, you know, a lot of people that graduated with IT degrees 30 years ago. And so yeah. the, the the playing field, you know, millennials understand the internet, they're internet natives. They do things on the internet that I, I can't even imagine doing. So the, I would say the table stakes in terms of technologists is that everybody understands technology better and they depend upon it in their lives. Um, no, I have a, I have a, a a robot litter box. I don't even I wouldn't even build a scoop of litter box. I don't even have a litter scoop at this point. Like my cat litter box runs off my phone. My if, if my phone crashes, I can't make a cup of coffee in the morning. Like it's to the point where everything we do is connected. And so you think about the ability to to learn and and the new roles. Don't this is not a time to say to worry about how it affects you and your career. It's a time to embrace it and learn new things. And so. I agree with Gene 100. It's not no one's jobs ever been replaced by a technology, right? In in mass, it's about yeah. using these technologies to be able to solve problems. To to I like your word toil, so you're not toiling at things where you could be using then your skills to do something even more exciting that can have a better a better impact to either your you know your your company, your industry, or just society in general. So I, I hope people embrace this. I think, I think yeah, I think so. I think the best engineers are lazy. Meaning that they want automation, you know, to do the stuff that they don't want to do anymore. And I think yeah. that kind of mindset is going to suit them really, really well in this new era, um, you know, that we're moving in. Where we scripted and I think, everything in the '90s on network, right? Nobody wanted to go hit every switch just to change one parameter. We scripted everything. I, I, I agree. For so, sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I think the um, to kind of amplify what you're saying about kind of like you know. There's always like, you know, uh, there's been, there was a kind of a mantra that, you know, AI is first going to take your jobs and then it's going to kill us. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, loosely the plot for the Terminator. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But but I think, you know, um, as I um, resonate with something you were just saying, so like in the mid 90s, um, it was actually a little bit before that, but really started hitting a stride kind of in the late 80s, early 90s. 
and that is the introduction of, of uh, bridging um, and also routing. And, um, and the key thing with that is both spanning tree and also with um, what became TCP IP, it was really kind of the computing industry's first implementation of machine learning and Dijkstra, which creates the shortest path is really an AI algorithm, you know? And so once those came in, I remember at that time, people were just saying, well, you know, this, you know, this is going to be all automated and there won't be any jobs there. Right. And look at us now, you know, look out how many, what the shortage is of both network engineers and also security engineers. So I'm totally with you on that. You know, I don't think there's anything really to worry, you know, if people are going to be worried about this, I think it's really more of an excitement, you know, area we're entering into this golden era where you can um, consume innovation a lot more, you can get rid of the toil that we didn't want to, that we don't like to deal with, you know, anyway, um, and be able to accelerate outcomes, business outcomes for the corporations that that we work for. That's, you know, that's my view, I think, on really where we're kind of going with this whole AI piece, you know, and... Um, the security I, part is huge, right? Like, I, I don't think we can gloss over it because to, to, to your point, you know, nation states... Uh, 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 just people that want to, you know, just take advantage of, of honest companies for their own personal yeah. gain. They have access to all the same tools and data. And so I think we're upping the ante. And I, I think you're right. The industry needs to quickly figure out how to help drive up the expertise in the security capabilities we're going to need to deploy and the, in, in the professionals that are going to need to do it uh, quickly, because I, you know, you know, things like quantum are coming around the corner and all yeah. these different capabilities are going to come together with generative AI and quantum and cloud. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, unfortunately it's a fact of life. We have to protect our company from those that want to do it harm or those that just want to take advantage of it for, for financial gain. And so I do think to your point, mm. you know, network engineers, uh, people that have a strong foundation in, in these sciences, security engineering, we, we, A, they need to, they need to, this is their sort of golden age, but we also need to figure out how to attract more talented people because we're going to need more, right? Yeah. This is, this is speed of light and it's happening faster. I think, you know, I mean, listen, you know, two ONUGs ago, well, three ONUGs ago, I don't, how many times do you think we said generative AI three ONUGs ago? Say that again? How many times have we actually said the word generative AI three ONUGs ago? Oh, yeah. Two very, ONUGs ago, all very, of you yeah. talked about a generative AI. Yeah, yeah very. Yeah. So. Very little. And and actually in this ONUG coming up, it's it's really, it's the AI networking summit at ONUG. <laughs> you yeah. know? It's like. So, I mean, I think, I think if you just look at the ONUG, just go yeah. back into the ONUG.net and look at the last three ONUGs, you're going to see how quickly, go through all our ONUGs and give me another capability that came up this fast. And, you know, now has become the headliner, right? It's, yeah. it's above Schwarzenegger on the Terminator poster. It's the biggest thing on there now. Like, we should have I don't mean that in a negative way, but it's got, it's got top billing now. And so this is yeah. how quickly this is happening. And so this is why, you know, we, we've got to be, we've got to be diligent and we've got to really make sure that we're training people properly for this. So, yeah. Um, crazy. I'll tell you, Chris, you know, it's like, um, it was Andy Brown and Phil T that, you know, uh, gave that keynote um in fall in new york that kind of like i think lit the fire underneath everyone's you know um you know bum about this and they've been really good and, and so i started wrapping my mind around this um you know right after that you know like so this is like early november and 
it was, wasn't that long that when we were starting to kind of like think through the design, you know, of, of, of the program, we realized every single topic has an AI component now to it. It's, you know, it's not a track. It is systemic all across everything uh, that has anything to do with infrastructure, you know, now. And, um, sure. um, and the supplier community, you know, it's like, you're, you know, like I think what Juniper announced like yesterday, like, you know, they're kind of um, AI native networking, you know, program. Ericsson, I think is about to announce, um, you know, obviously Cisco um, bought, you know, Splunk and there's a lot of, there's a big AI play, you know, in, in that area. So um, HP and um, Juniper, you know, that kind of merger, mm. you know, happening is really driven by this. Because so Aruba, Aruba's um, got a, Aruba has a big plan. They're they're talking. I mean, they're every. It's it's. I don't think if you're in the infrastructure space, if you don't have a strategy around AI, that you're you're gonna you're long for, uh, you know, the, yeah. the race here. So I think I think everybody's in a. Um, and I, once again, I think the data's been there, right? I mean, we've been very good at collecting data. Look at the success of Splunk, right? Now it's yeah. how do you turn that data into split second insights and changes that have a benefit both, you know, both performance, security, resiliency, whatever you want to talk about. It's that, to your point, doing that stuff at the speed of business, the speed at which we have to do it to be both secure and to be successful is kind of the exciting, the exciting twist that we're seeing come to fruition now. So um, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty stoked. Yeah. I'm excited about it too. And it's like, I just, um, what I want to kind of see like all the new AI tools um, and how do, how do we use them? How do we expose uh, the community, you know, to them and, I really be kind of an epicenter um, in the industry for um, the path forward um, around this. You know, how do people get skilled up? Um, you know, uh, what works, what doesn't work? Um, you know, how to get prepared? How do you consume? How do you get ready to kind of do AI stuff? You know, so yeah, um, yeah I'm 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 pumped up. I'm excited about uh, the journey that uh, we've been on, and actually, I think the accelerated journey that we're now find ourselves into. So great it's to have you. Right. <laughs> I think Thanks. um I think that's a good place to stop, don't you think? Works for me. It was okay. fun. Good conversation. Awesome, Chris. Hey thanks, Chris, Nick. thanks so much. You know, it was so great to to chat with you. And uh you see know, you in uh, Texas in May. See you Texas in May. <laughs> right? <laughs> for sure. All right. All right. Thanks, Chris. Take it easy. Yep. Bye. Okay.